Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Building relationships is important, but it's not always easy. From awkward conversations to difficulty engaging, there's a lot to maneuver and a lot that can go wrong. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on building relationships for success. In it, you'll discover how to build and maintain strong relationships. You'll also learn how to use your CRM for relationship management. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 228. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am really excited about today's guest, a little bit of a different approach than we often take. He is the head of Studio Libeskind Design. He has worked on projects including the Jewish Museum Academy in Berlin, the Modern Art Museum of Vilnius, the City Life Central Tower in Milan, a new train station in Nice, and the master plan of Dame de Port in Angola. So he has been all over the world and designed all kinds of amazing projects. He and his team have also designed projects for companies including, or designed products for companies including Alessi, Casina, Jacuzzi, Fiam, Flexform, Hennessy, and Swarovski. So he's, he's kind of all out there in the world. Um, he is, has a family heritage of architecture built on the success of his father, renowned architect Daniel Libeskind. And he is based in Milan and Rome, Italy. So we are so glad to have you. Welcome to the show, Lev. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I am well. Uh, it's always nice to talk to people across the pond. And <laughs> Italy is one of my absolute favorite places in the entire world. I wish I were there right now. So um, I'm kind of jealous, but I will, I will survive. <laughs> All right. So Lev, I just shared the, the main highlights of your bio, which anybody could kind of steal from your website, but that's not really who you are as a person. And your story is a lot more interesting than that. So I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. When did your passion for what you're doing start? Um, and what were some key stops on the journey that took you to where you are today? Well, I mean, it really started at the earliest age. I grew up around architecture. Um, quite literally, my father founded a school in Milan, Italy, uh, which was very uh, suspicious and, and great for me later because I learned Italian as a child in elementary school. And um, he started this school for basically postgraduates, and they were from around the whole world. There was from Africa, from the States, from Europe. And it was literally in our apartment in Milan, like inside mm -hmm. the apartment. So you wow. Would go to yeah. So we grew up literally, you know, kind of me and my brother playing ball, you know, around the uh, drafting tables and, uh, you know, <laughs> sitting around the wood shop and, and also listening to all these ideas about architecture from from the, um, the students uh, and my father, of course, um, around us. So we kind of really grew up. And then, of course, from there, my father won his only second competition and his first building, which is the Jewish Museum wow. of Berlin. Uh, that was in 1989, and I was 13, and we moved to Germany. And that was a very politically um, complex period because it was right at the reunification of East and West Germany, and the reunification also of the city of Berlin. And so that museum went through five or six changes in national government, took 12 years to build. It was also technically complex. It was a kind of a new um, uh, idea of construction along with the, the, the radical architecture. And so I really grew up my whole teenage years in the, breathing this project and going to the construction sites and watching them pour concrete, going to the office, 
watching them work out solutions for electricity and security and plumbing and all that kind of the guts of the project, which is um, so fascinating. So uh, I kind of grew up in it. And then I went and I did other things in life. I, I got a degree in architecture. I got uh, an MBA along the way. And I did some other things. I worked for a, a tribunal in Switzerland. I worked for um, an international organization uh, with 33 countries out of uh, Germany. Um, and then I got a fateful phone call from my parents saying, um, you know, do you want to come to Milan to take over the office uh, that they had, which was a small kind of uh, satellite office of the New York one. And they said, look, you know, we have these kind of um, products that we're developing, you know, chairs and tables, a tea set, I think it was. Um, and we'd like you to come and, you know, kind of guide these these products. And so uh, fatefully, I, I left um, I left my kind of career path that I was on then and returned to the world of architecture uh, three kids in tow, and this was in 2011. <laughs> and that's kind of what I wanted to focus on with those kind of four or five years. It was, yeah, it was around five years from 2011 to 2016 when we kind of created this incredible adventure of, um, of life and creativity and business in Milan. Uh, I've since gone on to, to do other things uh, as well as architecture, including in real estate, but I thought it would be kind of an interesting case study to focus on on that period in Milano. Definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're, we're gonna get to that, I think a little bit later, but I wanna actually get started because we've mentioned a word a few times here and I think people might be curious about how we're going to talk about it. You have a background that shows just a lot of creativity over time and we're talking about creativity today. Um, so I wanna start with a really simple question, but it's probably bigger than a lot of people might be thinking. What does creativity mean to you? That's a really, really big question. Um, I mean, it's at the root of everything. It's at the root of, you know, philosophy and politics and art. You know, nature itself is creative, you know, even kind of pre-human or non-human nature. I mean, it's, a, it's just a fundamental world force is the only real way I can, I can describe it. I mean, maybe, I mean, in the context of my experience professionally, you know, I would say that there are two types of creativity. You know, I work in a design services field in a creative, very creative field. And there's that kind of creativity of the raw art, the art of architecture, the art of good design, um, which involves uh, conceptual sketches, but also knowing how to execute the details over, over many, many different sets of drawings and models. Um, and then there is a second creativity, which is no less creative, and just as fundamental to getting a building built or to get, uh, you know, to get a product to market, which is the creativity of the execution of the production, being a producer uh, more on the business side, which is also political because it entails talking to, to the authorities, you know, uh, urban planning commissions, the city government, um, the region uh, or province uh, often, um, you've got all these consultants, everything from fire safety to landscaping, you know, you, you have to interact with all these different forces and that is necessary to actually get a project built from a piece of paper to a multi, multi-million dollar, um, uh, construction site. 
So definitely. Yeah. So basically those two things kind of complement each other and they're two different types of creativity, but they come from the same place of kind of experimentation and love for the unknown and kind of this kind of um, ability or desire to jump into the unknown, do something new, see if it works. And then hopefully, you know, you strike at some point, you go through all the rock and you, you know, you strike some gold. I love that. I think that's a really important distinction that people don't always think about. I think a lot of times the perception of creativity is that it is just that initial spark of an idea. You know, a creative person is somebody who can who can look at a situation and say, oh, I have something you haven't thought of before that we could do instead. And that is certainly creativity. That's, that's not we're not saying that it's not. But then the person who takes on managing it, people are like, oh, that's boring. But if you want to get a big project accomplished, if you want to produce a product, even even sometimes small initiatives that you're working on, you're going to have to make sure that you can you know, finagle your way kind of through a lot of complicated situations. That's right. That's a good um, word. Good and, word. Yeah. And you see it a lot um, when it comes to architecture and design and construction of a building, you know, oh, the architect wanted this specific finish. Well, that's not necessarily possible. We can't get that exact product. Let's find a creative solution. Oh, the walls need to be a certain you know, distance apart, or they need to be a certain thickness that wasn't in the original spec. And so we need to come up with a creative way to accomplish the design goal while still following the regulations of the of the area that we're in. And so thinking through all of those complexities, that requires creativity. It's not, it's not easy. But um, if you can do it really well, that's going to be the difference between success and failure. Well, I mean, I'd go even farther in a way that fundamental to the art of architecture is also your ability to deal with budgets and deal with restrictions of many kinds, legal, technical, uh, you know, uh, social, and to be able still to make a great piece of art at the end, a great piece of architecture, or, or also a great uh, piece of furniture or a great lamp or, you know, whatever object it is you're designing. So... Um, so this kind of this this necessity of architecture is precisely that God is in the details. Everything has to be kind of creatively resolved from every finishing to every um, uh, pouring of a section of concrete because everything has cost implications and you can't bankrupt the project. Absolutely. And that's one of the most, I would say, difficult forms of creativity is to say, hey, anybody could not anybody, but most people could design something absolutely amazing if they had unlimited resources. But oh, yeah, what if you don't have sure. limited resources? And by the way, can- by the way, there are some architects that get to work in the Gulf that mm-hmm. uh, that I'm very jealous of because they have nearly unlimited resources. Absolutely. You look at some of those projects and it's like, wow, when you can throw all the money in the world at something, it is pretty amazing what it is that you can accomplish. Um, yeah, but that's, but not, that's not most not of the world. For most of us. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting, but that's not most of the world. Most of the world is budgets, and it's a world, you know, it's also public sector buildings that, or university buildings that, you know, have to go on a, on a, on a certain budget and can't, can't change. You know, it's, it's part of the, the contract. It's part of the, um, it's part of the feat of, of building something, you know, is to be able to do it within a timeline and a budget and with the right kind of balance between functionality and, and, and the original spirit of the design. Absolutely. And I I think 
it actually kind of generates stronger creativity and helps people kind of practice that muscle of creativity when you do have to um, work a little harder in that way, when you do have to um, think about all these constituencies and all these limitations and regulations and budgets and everything else and still come up with something that both meets the, the objective goals of the project, but also, you know, makes you feel good about what it is that you designed and, and developed. And so um, to to finally end that and to accomplish it must be just such a such an incredible feeling. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a great way of putting it. I mean, I, you know, we often we often say that there are two main goals here. You know, of what we're doing in life of 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 this of this art of architecture, which is number one to do something great, a great piece of architecture, something that really is is beautiful and is something that people uh, flock to and people like to look at in a city. Um, and number two is to make it profitable for the client, you know, because that's, that's good business. Then they come, you know, they often come back. We have a very, very high rate of clients who come back to us to do, you know, other projects because we were able to execute well. So, um, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that those two things go together hand in hand, you know, to make the client happy and to do a great piece of architecture. I mean, that's after yeah. all why, why we hope they hire us. Definitely. I think some people might perceive that those are in conflict and really they shouldn't be because if you accomplish one, the design part that you're, that you're happy with and proud of, but you don't accomplish the other, it, it's not going to actually become reality or you're going to end up with a very unhappy and frustrated client um, and maybe a, a final project that isn't successful because people can't afford to, you know, live there or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the final goal of the project is, you may not be able to accomplish if you're not able to work within the budget that's been established. So just in order to be, um, to be successful and, and, and make it real, you really have to, you really have to think about. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of budget. I mean, it is also political art form in the sense Mm -hmm. that you have, you know, projects are very much linked to different administrations, uh, especially in, in cities in big cities, uh, different political parties, you know, want their own architectural uh, addition to the city and something that reflects them and that they can take credit for politically. So there's that aspect of it, you know, which is inescapable in, in, in most projects to deal with, you know, to go through all the hoops of regulation and of different uh, levels of city administration And uh, everything from the Neighborhood Community Board, which in some countries is very powerful, all the way up to the, 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 in some cases, even the national government. Um, So, you know, there's a political aspect and an economic aspect that makes architecture kind of uniquely restrictive. But that in itself forces creativity. That kind of feel, those kind of parameters makes you have to kind of figure out new ways of combining kind of uh, good architecture with something profitable and something that can get through um, the city administration and that the city itself can be proud of. Definitely. And um, I I see that a lot in New York, um, both the, you know, no, everybody wants to start a project and everybody wants to be the one to finish, finish a project, but people don't always want to be the one who's in office during the time that the project is being done. And so to, to manage the different personalities and, um, and goals that people might have and, and, 
you know, I would imagine sometimes there might even be ego involved. Shocking. Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> requires requires some creativity. Definitely. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's like this kind of um, working, like to me, the, the, let's say the volume of work is also important. Like you have to just go through option after option and, and variant after variant of design and also, you know, rethink over and over again the planning and, and just do a lot of work. And then with that kind of volume of work, you suddenly hit a kind of strata of, of real, um, I don't know how to put it, like, like real uh, uh, creativity. You know, you suddenly hit inspiration. You suddenly hit this kind of vein of inspiration and then, you know, then you right away scramble and then you have the solution. So there's a kind of, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a kind of organic process to it, which is, um, which is wonderful. Definitely. And this kind of relates to the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because you applied your creativity in even a, a different way as well, because you have identified ways to identify creative offerings for your business. So in addition to the architecture and the design, you've gotten involved in designing products. And I'd love to hear a story of kind of how you develop that. And then let's identify what are maybe some best practices that listeners could be creative in finding new revenue for their brands and for their companies that they work within. Well, so um, another great question. Uh, well, best practices, I mean, maybe starting there, you know, Going for me, going to furniture fairs and real estate fairs and, and conferences and doing a little bit of investment, even if you have to stay in a kind of, you know, second rate hotel and you're in and out very quickly and it's, it can be tiring, but it's worth it because I learned a lot and I even picked up quite a few clients that way, quite a few clients in design, in, in um, product design, mostly furniture, but also lighting and accessories. I found, at least in the beginning, I found a few of them through these these fairs. One is the uh, Maison de G in Paris. And then, of course, in Milan, where I was based, the Salon del Mobile. So anyway, so then there was also, in the beginning for me, I mean, this is something, again, concrete, that, you know, it's kind of, you know, you, you might not associate it with, with, with a brand like Libeskin, but in the beginning, I did a lot of cold calling because people didn't know that we had, that we were opening you know, this kind of design franchise, which was its own Italian company that I was running from Milan, uh, which I still run, but, f you know, for now for most architectural proje projects. But nobody knew that we were even doing product design in the beginning. So I literally got on the phone and just cold called the, the general number for some of these companies that I wanted to work with. Um, and, you know, it was hit and miss. Some of them kind of uh, say, oh, we'll take another meeting. But a few of them were like, okay, let's, let's, let's try to do something. Um, so it was, really, uh, it was really exciting to kind of, um, yeah, to, to, to do that. And, and then I think it's a concrete thing that, that could help people that don't, you know, dismiss just that kind of outreach, you know, bluntly because you can't get the meeting any other way. Um, so then, um, yeah, and that's, you know, and then in the beginning, okay, so this is what happened. Um, we had these two huge projects in Milan, mm -hmm. right? This, this tower, which is one of the tallest towers in, in Italy. 
and this huge um, city life apartment blocks, which were, you know, 800 uh, housing units or so. Wow. So then what happened was that they started to ask us for our specs for the furniture in the lobby and our specs for all the doors and the door handles and kind of, you know, those, uh, you know, um, fixed furniture. And so I thought, well, I'm here, you know, doing this kind of very um, luxury design for a couple of galleries, but we should really be specifying in our own buildings products that we design because it fits the architecture, you know, and it's, it's beautiful. It makes it, it makes it more interesting in, in, in the interiors. So um, we met quite serendipitously with a door maker um, who was a fantastic family from, uh, from Como close to Milan. And we designed a door and then we thought, okay, we need a door handle. So we, designed uh, two different door handles with um, a famous company called Olivari, also out of Milan. And we were able to kind of um, put together the architecture and the interior design with a whole brand, a whole kind of branded Libeskin bunch of products with some of the best companies known for uh, interior and urban design in the world, because Milan is a, is a real powerhouse in that. Um, so we, we started with the town, but by the way, by no means were they all Italian companies. There were also companies from Germany and France and England that we worked for. So, you know, and also, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, and Poland. So it was really kind of this, this really international, interesting bunch of, um, companies from chair makers to lighting experts, to mirror, uh, company like Fiam, uh, to building a jacuzzi. Uh, as you mentioned before, designing a bottle for for Hennessy, all these kind of different um, different products uh, was, I think, like the greatest experience in creativity imaginable. Because it really yeah, because like it, was, like, it. it was so vast. You know, you had to think about everything from the salt shaker on the table to a building. You know, and everything in between. You know, the exterior lighting <laughs> poles to you know to an armchair in the lobby for somebody to wait you know, sit on as they wait. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a really powerful story. And there's a couple of things there that I want to identify that that other people can can think about applying. Because first of all, so often we think that the scope of work that our organization does is all we can do. And maybe you work on a certain part of a project, like for example, you you are the architect and you you design the building and you think, okay, that's that's where we're going to get our revenue. That's the work that we're going to invest in. That's the the network that we're going to build is going to be all around that part. But then you and your family recognize that there was potential for a complimentary offering to say, you know what, both from a revenue perspective of you know getting some of the some of the extra profit, which For is never sure. a bad thing, but also from a design perspective of making sure that um, everything kind of flows together appropriately. Hey, what if we were to get involved in not just designing the outside of the building and, and you know, the, the, the stone and metal and uh, materials that it's made out of, but the, the things like the lights and the door handles and, and all of the little details that make it real, that make it something um, defined. And so to, to identify that that's an, a complementary business line to get into requires some creativity because I would imagine not all architecture firms are doing that. No, some are, some are not. Some are doing it in a completely different way. 
Um, but you know, when in, back in 2011, Italy was in this huge financial uh, recession. You know, it mm-hmm. still hadn't gotten out of recession like some other countries had. So, um, so there was this kind of, kind of de- quite depressed, sad market, and I noticed that there was there weren't kind of enough designers. Like they kept on using the same designers over and over again. And so I right away thought, well, why can't, you know, why can't we be in this? I mean, you know, Liebeskind is, 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 a, is a famous studio. We did Ground Zero. We did, you know, 50 Towers all over the world. I mean, it, it must, somebody must be interested. And in fact, they were. And then, you know, once they realized that we were both kind of a foreign firm, which has certain benefits, uh, coming in as an outsider, you know, the, the kind of marketing brand kind of synergy, for lack of a better word. And then also the fact that, you know, I was based with a team of Italians in, in Milan, a big team working on these products. So they could come to us. They didn't need to fly to New York or something. They could just come around the corner and discuss this or that detail of, of a product with us. You know, whether it's, you know, the, what, what precise, uh, a mechanism for the lighting to, you know, what, um, you know, the curvature of a piece of a chair. Definitely. So it's it's figuring out, again, that complementary revenue stream, that complementary design stream, but um, it's it's logical and it fits with the situation that you're involved in where there's a need for it and um, it's beneficial. So I think yeah, it, it was there's really kind of a constant... Yeah, there's a constant thread of balancing some of the kind of um, just facts, some of the kind of requirements, whether it's a, whether it's budget and financial goals or whether it's the economic situation with more of kind of the design mindset. And I think that's also um, that's also an element of creativity that's involved in that is really thinking about um you know, how, how can I, again, as we've been talking about this whole conversation, it, it's balance and balance is a really key element in creativity. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a good balance with the profitability because, I mean, we blew up. Like, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that we, we did very well d- despite the financial situation I- in Milan at the time. But that allowed us, being successful financially, allowed us to hire new designers, allowed us to pay for um, all our designers to go and do uh, training on new software technologies. Uh, like Beam technology, for example, and and other softwares like like Rhino uh, for for design. So you know you need to kind of generate a critical mass of of revenue in order to to build the company. You know, in order to to, to make it more um, viable in the long term. Definitely, definitely, and I think. Um as leaders who are looking at their organizations, really thinking about all of those different factors, thinking about um, you know diversifying your portfolio, thinking about leveraging um, the situations that you're in, um, the situations of the economies around you and um, the industry that's around you, and really thinking through um, how can I have a creative approach again to be as successful as possible um, and and build a stable stable product line that um, that can contribute creativity and, and design uh, as well as uh, on the bottom line. Well, I mean, you know, th- that's an interesting thing that you, you just uh, brought to mind, which is that buildings have a very long period from their initial inception 
to actually being a, a functioning and open building to the public. So mm-hmm. we're talking years and, you know, you know, at least three, five, uh, I've seen buildings that were 10, 12 years from beginning to, to end. Uh, and some you work on for a decade and then they, they just, uh, they just end up going nowhere. Whereas product design, we learned very quickly has a different timeline. So it's on a much shorter timeline. So it's about eight months to 18 months, you know, depending on the complexity of the product, Um, you know, and then you already have a functioning uh, preliminary model that you can put in a showroom. You know, we did a kitchen, for example, um, that was very successful. Um, So uh, that was for Varenna Polyform, by the way, just to plug them. Um, but, uh, so the, these two different timelines allowed us to actually use some of the same people who were working on architectural, uh, building projects, use them in interim ways when those projects were in suspension or in a long period of review to use them then as product designers. So, which was great for them because they all kind of got to retrain, you know, so they all, we're really like, I'm talking about, we went from when I got there, there was a handful of people, maybe seven or eight to 26 mm-hmm. people in um, under five years. So it really expanded, but people really loved it and invested because they got this ability to do both architecture and products, you know, on these two different timelines of, of uh, realization. That's wonderful. As you said, both from a kind of management perspective, whenever you're running a business and you've got people kind of laying fallow, you know, just not not really being able to to work because uh, you're in a slow period or you're in a review season or whatever it might be, um, to be able to actually um, have those people generating money is, is obviously a good thing for the business. It also, I would imagine, is creatively stretching those people and having them do things that they don't usually do and work, I would imagine, with materials that they're not always working with. Uh, that's a wonderful way to to kind of stretch yourself and your creativity. And that must have been uh, just a, a great learning experience for them. And then when they got back to the you know, designing buildings, they would probably be able to think of ideas that they wouldn't have necessarily thought of before once they've been designing things like products. Yeah. And we also did like a number of public sculptures, uh, some temporary, mm-hmm. but most of them actually permanent uh, across Italy and across um, Europe. And those were kind of also together with our design manufacturers, you know, our clients in design and who a lot of times would support the, the, the sculptures financially, but also give, donate the um, materials, whether it's glass, mm-hmm. we've used obviously steel, um, uh, plastics, uh, resins, you know, so there you get to build these kind of architectural objects because they're huge, you know, they're you know, kind of nine, 10 meters tall uh, or, or mm-hmm. even more. Some of them are, are, are even taller than that. But you get to do kind of something on an architectural scale, but still involve your um, design people, your design clients and the engineers you work with on on tables and and mirrors and so on. So it's a kind of, you know, they they got to do everything from public sculptures and major buildings to uh, little accessories for Alessi. So it was, um, yeah, I think everybody... uh, Everybody there kind of enjoyed enjoyed that aspect of it, that, that kind of creative aspect of it. 
Uh, and of course, from a business point of view, you don't want to lose those people. I mean, what some firms do and what, I mean, frankly, what we, we did in the past as well is you get, you know, short-term kind of uh, freelancers or consultants, mm-hmm. architects who come in, but then like, you know, you, they work for months or years and then they build up all this knowledge and institutional knowledge inside your office, inside the studio and all this knowledge outside about how to build the building. And then you have to kind of let them go. So, you know, it was also kind of always a conundrum how to keep all these people in play, you know, in a, you know, with between the product design and the, and the architecture and the, and the other stuff. Definitely. All right. Well, I'd love to, to ask you, because I think that speaking of this, this, this is really a situation that you've probably been in is you probably had to kind of foster some creativity in those architects. You know, if you're telling somebody who thinks that all they should be doing is designing a big building and you say, okay, now I want you to think about designing um, a, a public art piece, or I want you to think about designing, you know, a door knob or designing um, a, a bottle it, that's going to require kind of fostering creativity in other people. What have you learned over the years about how to actively um, help foster creativity in others? Well, I mean, good, good question. Um, you know, in a weird way, you don't, you don't need to foster it because everybody kind of wants to be creative mm-hmm. in their own ways. I mean, I, I really don't, I don't think I've ever met somebody who is not in some way likes to be creative whether it's in their job or uh, their hobbies or, or whatever. And frankly, I mean, one of the great parts of being in Italy is that people here really, really breathe, you know, because of their history, because of the way their cities and towns look, they breathe architecture and they have the great, greatest appreciation for design and they have just a great eye. I mean, the Italians are really fantastic in this. So I had no kind of problems fostering creativity. It was more kind of creating the right, how can I put it, the right space to capture that inspiration and use Mm -hmm. it, that kind of fire, that kind of lightning. So like in the, for example, simple things like the arrangement of the desks in the office and kind of letting people arrange their own kind of areas and giving people kind of their creative space to, you know, listen to music or, you know, whatever they want to do, trying to make the office space itself something creatively conducive. And then, you know, just, uh, you know, we did a lot of brainstorming sessions, um, you know, just a lot of, a lot of work uh, in order to find that kind of one solution that creatively uh, satisfies the works, you know, and by the way, the, uh, this is a funny um, appendix to what I was saying before, but the whole kind of thing came full circle in Milan uh, at the time because one of our um, one of our design clients, product design clients, um, got us a huge master plan. Basically, mm-hmm. got us a, yeah. So it came completely full circle from putting in doors and door handles into our uh, nearly finished uh, residential buildings in Milan of City Life came full circle through the design to building like the city and ports in Africa. So mm-hmm. in, uh, in Angola. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, it was a, it was a wild ride and definitely a creative one. It 
really sounds like it. Um, it I'd love to hear then, you know, I, I, I really appreciate what you said is that you don't necessarily need to do too much to foster creativity in people because people want to be creative. Well, what about listeners who maybe want to be creative themselves, but they don't feel like they're, they're being as creative as they want to be. Do you have any advice for people to kind of foster and develop and improve their own creativity? Again, I mean, speaking, speaking, I mean, concretely, like I like to, I like to write things down. Like I have kind of moments throughout the day where I have kind of, mm-hmm. kind of these kind of flashes of ideas. I, I, I think like everybody else, you know, you kind of think things through on the train or in the car or as you're doing your shopping and you kind of have a, suddenly a solution comes to mind. And I like to write them down like right away, kind of just make a note in my phone and then compile them later kind of systematically and see kind of what, what fits, what's worth keeping of those ideas that I thought during the day were, were good ideas. Um, and just, you know, seeing, and, and it really helps me actually organize my kind of, my, my, um, my day and my thoughts and kind of my, uh, what I have to do, you know, to in, in, the, in the 5,000 things there are to do, you know, what, uh, what priority, priorities are and all that. So that's, I mean, that's just being very concrete. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, I like to go to museums and walk around museums. Um, I, I, I'm quite a visual person in, in the sense that I, I love uh, visual things. I love movies. Um, just kind of get your go, – go do something for your creativity, which is concrete, which you're saying like this is for no other reason than to have new thoughts, to be creative, to, to somehow – innovate to, 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 to get out of this way of thinking and think in a new way in a different direction. So, you know, I like, for example, go to the zoo, you know, I, I go to the zoo with my kids and there I always get, you know, by watching the animals, I always get kind of creative juices flowing, so to speak. Definitely. I think you mentioned actually a few different things that people might think of. If you're, if you're looking for creativity to get outside whatever mode you're in, is probably a good idea. A lot of times we think I just need to keep working on the thing I'm working on and wait for that stroke of inspiration to come. But instead, if you do go out and you go to a museum or you go to a zoo or you go do something else, a lot of times that creative idea is going to pop into your head when you're not working for it. And the longer you think you need to focus and work for something, kind of the harder you're making it for yourself because um, you're, you're kind of straining as opposed to just live your life and, and get out there and, and look at different things and experience different things and, and make your life as interesting as possible, introduce some chaos into your day. And then your brain is going to be working behind the scenes on kind of putting things together. And it might even be something that you don't consciously notice in the world around you when you're out and about that. Then you go back to whatever it is that you're working on, where you're looking for a creative solution and your mind is going to actually translate whatever it was and help you come up with that idea. And um, that that really only happens if you give yourself that breathing room and you give yourself the time and the and the space to kind of get out into the world and experience it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you can't just wait around for inspiration. You have to go find it. You have to go, you know, actively um, do things in order to be creative and to think in a creative way, to get out of a kind of certain stasis a certain habituality 
that uh, or habit that that you know is a natural inclination in a way of a person of of humanity and to go and you know find connections um to also to entertain i mean cre- that's why everybody loves i don't know hollywood movies or or great books or great art is because there's something entertaining about creativity when you're looking at a painting by whoever your favorite art you know picasso is mine favorite artist it's like you know you're you're entertained you're like chuckling about how creative this guy was in painting uh this face you know going out to find inspiration and really finding the the consistent sources of inspiration that work for you so it sounds like you've identified you know certain artists that you can admire their work and just appreciate it at a, at a visual um, and emotional level. But then um, sometimes you can you can specifically go there to experience their art because you know that it sparks thoughts and and feelings and um, ideas that you might have that you might be able to implement. So kind of tying um, tying your experience of art with some intentional work at, at thinking of of creative solutions is well, a really you said, it, you said it well before when you mentioned the word chaos. That there is a kind of a certain chaotic, non-rational, maybe not irrational, but definitely non-rational kind of um, spirit to creativity. It's not part of your regular rational way of thinking, which always rationalizes after all. It always kind of makes everything uh, logical and, and seemingly set in stone. But creativity is always something that kind of disturbs that chaotically. And that kind of eruption is is what's um, what kind of what's what's what you have to be able to capture and somehow encourage. Definitely, when you look at um, when you're looking for innovation or creativity, and if you're constantly thinking in the same way and, and looking at the same things and experiencing the same things your your brain is going to actually be kind of bored and it's going to you know if you if you're always looking at the same things you're going to constantly come up with the same ideas but if you can um get out of that mode and really start to think uh in different ways and 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 of different things and be creative and and introduce that that chaos and that difficulty your brain is remarkable at turning that into order because that's that's actually what it does over the course of the day constantly. Uh, your brain is turning what seems chaotic into into order. That's what dreaming is. That's what um, that's you know your brain is is kind of working behind the scenes to process your memories and process all of your experience and turn it into something that seems logical. And so what you can do to to really motivate that to happen is to intentionally introduce a little bit of chaos not too much chaos that you're gonna <laughs> drive yourself harness, batty, but, but, harness um, chaos harness <laughs> yeah that's the greek said but um for one thing by the way just to add on to what you were saying i've actually had and i'm not the only one i know many many people um including my father who have actually had creative ideas from dreams so even though dreams i know that they also help with memory and help kind of organize your mind, like you said, but they also sometimes you can have wake up in the morning and have an incredible idea. Yeah. There's a lot of people who um, keep, you know, obviously you can do it now on just your phone, but if you don't want to look at your phone, keep a notepad near your bed. And if you wake up um, with a, with a great idea, make sure you capture it right away. Cause one thing that does happen, I think to a lot of people is you have those moments of creativity and 
if you don't do what you mentioned earlier, write it down when you, when you come up with it, you were in a certain mindset when you came up with the idea and it made full sense to you. And if you don't kind of capture it, you don't follow up on it right away. Sometimes the next time you look at it, you're not in that same mindset and you will have forgotten, um, the good idea that was there. So definitely right. make sure that uh, that you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, All right. I, honestly, my, my 12 year old daughter keeps a dream journal mm -hmm. and it is like the most fascinating read because I, I think school actually told her, you know, to, it was like a kind of a, um, a lesson at her school. And so she just kept on doing it and she just jots down every single dream she has. And it's totally fascinating just by the way. Definitely. Right. Oh, the, the, the ways that your brain works when you are dreaming, if you don't think you're a creative person, um, hopefully you can, you can remember your dreams sometime because uh, you will realize that you are a creative person in what, exactly. <laughs> what your dreams come Exactly. Up. Yeah. In, 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 even if it's in, in, in highly chaotic dreamlike ways. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, one question that I always like to ask our guests is for book recommendations, because, uh, you know, reading can be one of the great sources of creativity and, and motivation and, and, and inspiration. So do you have any books that you might recommend to our listeners? Um, I just actually finished a great book um, called Presidents at War by Michael Bischloss. Oh, yes. Surprisingly, surprisingly about creativity. Um, but you know, that's, uh, there are a lot of books about presidents these days. <laughs> um, otherwise, otherwise, you know, one of my favorite books, which I think is really underread is the, it's from the Renaissance. Okay. From, from Renaissance Italy, from the 1500s, it's the memoirs mm -hmm. of Benvenuto Cellini, C-E-L-L-I-N-I, -L -L -I, Cellini. He is like an incredible genius. He, he was a jeweler and a goldsmith at the time in Renaissance Rome and Florence. And he was considered as great as Leonardo da Vinci or Donatello or Michelangelo. He was really at that level. Now, because of the nature of goldsmithing and so on and so forth, you know, he's less known than he should be probably. But he's got, that's just a great book about business and art and the intersection that we've been talking about today between business and art and also manufacturing because after all he was uh, uh, using gold and silver and precious metals and gems so it was also had that design element to it um, and it's just a rollicking great read uh, including murders and poisonings and hiding for you know duels and so on uh, what one great business thing from that from that book that I always think about is that his choice for where he put his studio where he, he built his studio in Rome. He did it between these two big piazzas, right? Two big places. Mm -hmm. One of them is Piazza Navona and the other Capo de Fiori. And he said it's because he could go during the day to Piazza Navona and see the latest, you know, what the, what the elite rich Roman women were wearing, what kind of jewelry they were wearing. So you could see the latest trends and, and what was popular on the, on the market. Then at night, he would go walk the other direction from his studio and go to Capo de Fiori, where the thieves at night were black market selling the jewels that they had stolen, you know, from, <laughs> from the wealthy Romans. So for him, that way he got a sense of the actual value of the raw metals on the market, right? Because people were selling them on the black market and you couldn't resell them. You had to melt them down. 
So I always liked that kind of balance between aesthetics and design and kind of uh, branding on one side at Piazza Navona and, you know, the raw material <laughs> and behind the scenes of Campo de Fiori. Definitely. And I have to say, um, any anybody who is, is looking for that strong meld between design and business. I was in Venice a couple of years ago and I visited um, the island of Murano where yeah. they do glass and Murano where they do lace or I might have mixed them up but I think I, oh, I got no, yeah, that's those. right. And to to see the way that all the way back hundreds of years ago um, they were able to take this remarkable creativity, this remarkable kind of design, and then turn it into a business and turn it into a product that they could sell and, and bring to the entire world that didn't have these techniques is really remarkable. And it's really something that, um, that for a lot of people, they, I think, view business and creativity as, as very different things. Um, but if you want to be able to afford to, you know, to, to act on your creativity. If you want to be able to, you know, get out into the world and experience things, um, having a, having a business sense can be really helpful. So that's a, that's a great example. Any memoir of, of somebody who, who's really creative and, and yeah, has done and a lot also, of interesting things. Right, is, he was also good. a businessman. And so you know, the two are kind of interlaced in his story, but, you know, going back to what you said, I really feel that because I've since gone on to do other things in business and real estate. And I really feel it's just as creative. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's how you, how you kind of approach it, I guess. But I think you're, you're not going to succeed if I may be so bold, if you are not in any way creative. I mean, to get ahead, I mean, to, the world is competition. And one of the major things in competition is your ability to out-creative your opponents, so to speak. So, you know, I think it's just, it's a necessary part of business and business is just as creative as photography or art or architecture or anything else. Absolutely. By the way, and talking like about said. Venice, that's another, mm -hmm. uh, when I did my MBA, I wrote my thesis on Marco Polo and business. Mm -hmm. And Marco Polo, of course, was from Venice and went to China. That's also a great book about business, like about how you do business internationally and how you bring certain skill sets from a place like um, Renaissance Italy to the empire of Kublai Khan in China and become, you know, one of the top advisors to the emperor of China, even though you're a foreigner from, from Venice. So it's, it's, that's another great book that I would highly recommend. Definitely. That sounds like it. Well, um, we always like to ask a fun question if we can, and you had actually suggested this fun one. So uh, you have been thinking about architecture for most of your life. What is your favorite building and why is it your favorite? Okay. Thank you for asking this. So first of all, because of personal bias, I have to take out any project I worked on. And in fact, all my father's work, because that would be my favorite top 10 buildings right there. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I've been um, kind of living between Milan and Rome recently over the last couple of years. And in Rome, um, the, Parth the Pantheon, excuse me, the Parthenon is the Pantheon is, um, is probably the greatest building ever built. First of all, it's, a, it's the only building of Rome, which is not a ruin, which is, I mean, we're talking 2,000 years old. And it's mm -hmm. the only one 
of ancient Rome, you know, ancient Roman civilization, the empire, that is not just a total ruin and is in fact today a totally functioning building. It's got the biggest concrete dome in still today of any building in the world, which has got no buttresses. It's just self-reinforcing concrete. And most people don't know that that whole building, the Pantheon, is concrete. And then it's just, you know, it's just uh, a strange building because it's got no, it's got no discernible purpose. Like, in other words, it's a pantheon. It's for all the gods. So you couldn't do rituals to specific gods in there. So it wasn't really a temple in the traditional way. It was just this kind of space to see the sun move. You know, it's also a sundial inside through the oculus in the dome. So to see the movement of the sun and to kind of contemplate the, the universe it's a really universal space and kind of a space of no, no use, which I which I like as an architect. So yeah, that's 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 my favorite. That is a really really great example, and I love the reasons that you have behind it. It's also, isn't it? Um, it's as you said, it, it doesn't have buttresses. It the, the fact that it stands up and that it has stood up for so long, like it's just it's architecturally remarkable uh, in in its you know, longevity, yeah. considering um, the construction and just the, the perfection of the building that they were able to make so long ago. Um, I know just, just seeing it, it, it was uh, really impactful for me when, when I visited Rome. So yeah, uh, that's an excellent just, choice for your great building. building every I mean, also, if you just study the drawings of it, like Piranesi made incredible drawings of it. Um, it's this marvelous play of circle and square and triangle and, and, and golden section and just this beautiful geometry. Definitely. All right. Well, that is a question I have never asked before, but I am glad that we talked about it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you I, so much. I think I happen to really believe that architecture is not spoken enough by normal people. You know, it but, really isn't. No. And and most people do have strong feelings about it. If if you actually start to talk about it, people are like, oh, I hate those buildings that are glass, or I hate, you know, whatever it might be. And it, you know, we have we have strong feelings and emotions behind it, but don't don't often talk about it. So Yeah, um, well it's, I mean so it, it's a, it is perceived, and in a way it is kind of um this very expensive thing that real develop real estate developers do that um in many places people feel they don't have enough control over or say in and i think that that people you know architect from, from the perspective of architecture people should have a say uh in, in how their cities look you know they should have a say in how the architecture around them is is shaped because it shapes our lives mm -hmm. It really does. There's um, there's big controversy in New York over the last few years because they they're building these super tall skinny towers south of Central Park, right. and there's a lot of controversy over the shadows that they're creating within the park. And you have the developers behind the building say, no, you know, they're very skinny and they're not going to cause shadows. And then you have the the concerned park residents saying, no, um, you know, they've got all these all these pictures of designs. And then there's people who just say it looks kind of silly to have these tall, really skinny towers just sticking up out of the middle of nowhere. So I don't have a strong perspective either way. Um, you know, you need to build. But um, it, it is interesting to see once, um, once the conversation turns Turns to design, um, and and there's a concrete example in front of people uh, how strong their opinions and perspectives might be. Um, but like you said, it it does touch your everyday life. It touches your experience of living in a place. Um, so you should have a perspective. Yeah, and I think people, you know, sometimes they feel they don't have enough of a say, 
And all I can say is, you know, get involved. I mean, architecture is, it's a civic form of art and it, it belongs to all of us because we all have to, um, you know, interact with it. And, and in many cases, the taxpayers are, are, are funding it or are uh, giving tax breaks um, for it. So it really should, in a way, every building should respect um, the context around it and the people who use it. Definitely. And that's another way, you know, to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that's another way to demonstrate creativity is to to think about, you know, I might want to do something, but I know that that would not be, a good, it doesn't fit contextually within the environment that I'm looking at. So how can I be creative in accomplishing my design goal, but also matching with the tone um, that's appropriate for the neighborhood and, and the community? And if you can do both of those things and balance both of those, that'll require some creativity, but it'll definitely pay off. Yeah, for sure. I mean, also, you know, we what we always like to do is to create public spaces, you know, within mm -hmm. cities, so that even if you have um, uh, private residential or office uh, blocks, you still have a circulation that is open to the rest of the city, because the city is, you know, it's it's it, it beats like a heart. You know, you have to have arteries through it that that actually bring business that bring um uh, uh life that bring uh, nightlife and so on so we always like to try as much as possible within the constraints of the of the clients uh, program to open up uh our um master plans or our, or our even even singular buildings to the street in certain ways to give a kind of sense of public space that way you're kind of giving back to something in the city and also drawing people in to admire the building and to hopefully use the, the services, a restaurant or whatever inside it. Definitely. That's something that uh, I admire in New York. We have a number of, um, of spaces like that and you know, public, uh, privately owned public spaces and um, you know, whether it's a plaza outside or um, you know, a, a a lobby that has that has seating that's available when you can interact with a building even if it's you know you're not working there or living there or anything but it becomes kind of a part of the landscape um, especially in cities i think that's a, that's important because we don't always um you know you don't want to have so many spaces that you can't get into and you can't interact with and anytime you have an opportunity to have the general public interact with the building it, it becomes more a part of the community and that's a really powerful thing and and that makes people i think probably <laughs> you know like it more and and appreciate it more and and really think about it more yeah exactly i mean if the if the if the um let's say parameters of the project allow you to create a plaza a public space a public plaza that, in a way, is the greatest victory of all, because then you're not just building a building, you're not just designing a beautiful building, which is already incredible, but you're also creating a kind of viewing platform for it, which is also somewhere where people can feel at home in their own city, you know, because maybe they can't get into the building because of security reasons, it's private, it's offices, whatever, but you're, you're creating this kind of cool public space where we like, for example, to, to design benches outdoor furniture um mm -hmm. and then you you know you, you people come they their playgrounds with kids people come and re, you know eat their lunch or read a newspaper and that's like then you really feel like like you're part of the city you know your project is is 
part of the actual larger context. It's not just a standalone. Definitely. There's this um, building around the corner from our office and outside they made these big um, stone stairs. They're not, they're they're specifically for sitting on They're you know, there are walking stairs, but then there are bigger steps Mm -hmm. that are for sitting. And during the summer, that's where everybody from all the surrounding buildings eats their lunch. (laughs) And I just appreciate that so much that they have it there and you can sit outside and and have, you know, trees around you and, um, and really experience your day in a, in a much more pleasant way than if you were just kind of locked in your office. And it just took a designer who thought, Hey, why not, why not create some steps here for people to, to sit on and eat their lunches throughout the day. And they are always, always, always fully occupied. So um, it, it definitely works out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the best thing that you could, you can do. I mean, cities are growing at an exponential rate. I mean, th- th- there've never been so many human beings by percentage or by number living in cities then right now. And so to think of the city and to think of also new concepts of the city and also what makes cities work since antiquity. So also rediscovering some of the old classical conceptions of a city in order to thoughtfully create cities. I think that's a real challenge for this whole century because of the number of people flocking and just the sheer size and enormity of the infrastructures we're talking about. You know, whether it's New York or uh, Beijing, or Kuala Lumpur, or wherever, these mega cities, metropolises, they need to be thought through, or else you're going to end up with, you know, kind of favelas, or just concrete, um, uh, kind of endless grids, without any character. You know, so I think that that's kind of a real, um, something that not just architects or, or, or urban planners should think about, but every citizen of a, of a city should really think about what their city is and what it should become. And, you know, in some way, this is what's great about democracy is that in, in a sort of limited way, we have a say in what happens, you know, at least in these countries that we live in, in, um, in how the cities grow and, and, uh, and how they'll be for the, for the next generation. Absolutely. And I like how you mentioned uh, it's it's sometimes going back to old principles and thinking about what, what might have worked in the past. How are ways that people thought about this hundreds of years ago? Because a lot of times we can learn from that history and um, and take some similar approaches today. You don't always have to reinvent everything. Um, people have been living in cities for a very long time. And <laughs> but that goes for everything about architecture. I mean, it's staying faithful to the ancient principles from the Greeks and the Romans, from Vitruvius of the art of architecture, staying faithful to your history and respecting that history and the tradition, but also being able to push it forward. Because after all, mm-hmm. they themselves, those giants of, of architecture in the past, they need you to always at least try to do something new, try to innovate, try to experiment, even if you fail. And failing is part of it. You know, you, you know the famous expression, you have to knock on 10 doors, but all you need is one to open. You know, all you need to do is win one architectural competition and boom, you've got a great building and you get to the next level. Definitely. All right. Well, I have so much enjoyed our conversation today, Lev. This has been a lot of fun. I think we could probably keep talking for hours, but um, we probably need to wind this down. So thank you, Lev Liebeskind, for your time today. It has been uh, so wonderful talking to you. It was my pleasure. Fun talking to you. 
All right. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 228. We'll also include some links to Lev's work and Studio Libeskin. And so you can really see um, some of the amazing things that, that we've been talking about today. Be sure to tune in this Friday for another inspirational episode. And don't forget to leave any feedback that you might have, um, questions, comments, guest suggestions. You can email us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you are enjoying the show, please, please, please recommend us to your friends and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you might be listening. While you're there, if you leave a rating or a review, that'll help more people find the show. And it lets us know what's working and where we have room to improve. You can follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore six. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, Mark Grogan, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!